My name is Jason Nightingale. I don't have a, a pad for that. But anyway, my wife's name is Sharon. And uh, it's a joy and a privilege to be with you over this weekend. It was a, a great honor to be in your pulpit last night, brother, and to do John, praise God, and here this morning. Um, in your pulpit, right, this morning? Okay. And uh, just messing with you. <laughs> praise God. Um, I'm supposed to speak about uh, saltiness in men. So ladies, um, I'm sorry, I have nothing for you. No, we do actually. Um, there are three places in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus basically says the same thing. And he read one of them from Matthew. And the gist of what he says, and we'll go to them here in a little bit, but the gist of what he says is salt's a good thing, but if it loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything. It's, not, it's, it's only good to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. If it loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the saltiness that love brings to everything. Thank you that we are bankrupt if we do not love. Thank you that you modeled love perfectly for us on the cross. Thank you that we can identify the elements of our savor and that you've left us here to affect the world to your glory. Show us how. Show us how to restore savor to our saltiness. In Jesus' name, amen. My wife taught me the difference between strength and power. You know there is a difference, right? Guys are raised to be strong, man. Lifting weights, doing all that. My dad showed me one day, I was a, a, a junior in high school, thought I was pretty tough. I uh, had been lifting weights, you know, f- football, all that kind of stuff, 250 pounds, and uh, got my license, and I was a free man, of course, and my dad was 65, uh, almost 400 pounds, 6'6", six, six, big guy. I, I'm not very big. And uh, he, um, he had been a riveter and a boilermaker in the early days of his life, and um, where they straddled a girder on a, on, a, on a bridge and held a 52-pound rivet gun, steam-driven rivet gun in one hand for 12 hours, caught hot rivets thrown up from the deck and then drove them in, right? Well, you don't lose that kind of strength. And uh, any, anytime you're around an old farmer or anything, you know, watch out when you shake their hands, right? Because you don't lose that old, that, that upper body strength. And I told my dad I was going to do something. He said, no, you're not. And, and I said, well, you can't stop me. And he stood up, left-handed, flat-footed, grabbed my shirt and picked me up and set me against the wall and said, you're not going. Yes, sir. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never seen strength like that, uh, and I couldn't do that today, you know, and probably never could. 250-pound deadlift, flat-footed, one-handed, that was pretty good. And, um, <laughs> and that was strength. My son, uh, we were living in Northern California, he bought this old Volvo, and he fixed on it, worked on it, everything, you know, it was a two-door hardtop Volvo, and uh, he went to school in Salem. Well, from where we lived in California, the rain would come in, dump, and then leave, right? Well, in Salem, the rain comes in and kind of dumps. It's kind of like here. It just sits there for a long time, right? And this Volvo rusted shut. 
I ain't kidding, man. It was it was sealed like a box. You couldn't open it. And we were living in a motorhome, and we were up there in Salem, and we were gathering the family to have a Christmas together. And we were at the at the uh, CBA's headquarters out there in, in East Portland, and we had an ice storm, and everything was covered with ice. But we were trying to get the door of that car open, and we couldn't get it open. I mean, there's four, me and my four, my four sons, yanking on it, right, trying to get that thing open, and there was an opening. And she would walk up with her little bottle of WD-40 every now and then and spray in the any place that she could get that orifice of the WD-40. We're all laughing at her. That ain't going to do nothing. She'd spray it anyway. She'd spray it anyway. Well, we had strength, but the WD-40 had power. (laughs) And one day, I mean, we'd been crawling in the windows, crawling out. It's the only car we had between us, right? And all of a sudden, the doors just went pop and just opened. (laughs) Well, what did that? The power of the WD-40, penetrating oil, getting through it. That's what it was made for. Ah, I begin to learn what David learned. Actually, it wasn't what David learned. He knew it. It's what Goliath learned from David. Okay? Goliath had strength. I mean, he was one of the mightiest warriors of his day. Stood there and stared down a whole Israeli army. Thousands of men. He said, come out, send one of you dudes out here and let's go. And nobody would go. Everybody was shaking in their, in their sandals. I don't think they had boots, right? All right. And so... Right? And well, David went out there and he knew that a man with a tool who knew how to use it had the power to defeat the man who had that overwhelming strength. Goliath was so big, he had a man holding a shield in front of him. His, his, his spear was like a weaver's beam. You ever see one? He was a big dude. David had a couple of little round, flat stones, but he had a sling and he knew how to use it. And he was moving, he wasn't standing still, he wasn't stationary. And he flung it at that dude and hit him right between the eyes and killed him. Because David had power. He didn't need strength. God gives men strength, it's kind of cool. You know, we can beat our wives in arm wrestling and everything, right? And, and women, like children, know the limitations of their strength. Women are given an ability to submit, and there's great power there. The difference between strength and power. God gives that to us, too. Let's learn a little more about it. Because salt's a good thing. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. What's salt do? Well, salt flavors, right? Salt preserves. Salt kills. Salt enables you to stay alive. Cholera kills you because it, it gives you the worst diarrhea and vomit at the same time you've ever heard of, you've ever seen, even thought of. And all of a sudden you lose all this moisture out of your body and your electrolytes, the ability, the sodium center of your body that makes all your cells work and communicate suddenly has no ability. There's no sodium there and you die. The best thing you can do if you get cholera is start drinking Coca-Cola. It's water. It's got a lot of salt in it. Maybe not not thought about it. And it's got sugar in it. And you start rehydrating right now. Boom, boom, boom. Drink a bunch if you ever get cholera. A little thing to keep in mind if you're anywhere where there's cholera. Uh, Well, the thing is, in most of those places, there's Coke. Coca-Cola's available all over. And it's a a handy thing to have if you get cholera. Because don't get cholera. That's the best way. But... um, (laughs) 
What's that? Sprite. <laughs> Sprite's better. No caffeine. All right. Anyway, um, are you supposed to comment when I'm preaching? <laughs> Fun. Praise God. And uh, salt does a whole bunch of things. And you need it to live. And it's a chemical, two elements, and if you lose either one of them, it stops being salt. It is no longer able to do what it's supposed to do. It was so valuable that they, they paid the Roman soldiers with it. You know, that's the origin of the, of the word salary. It was salt was given as, as payment. Um, it was hard to come by. They hadn't discovered the, the loads of it that we have. They hadn't perfected getting it out of the seawater. Um, up until recently, you know it, it, it needs to be, have something added to it most of the time. You need to get iodine in your system through it. But salt is an incredibly important thing in the world in the natural sense. But you, men and women, are the salt of the earth. Now, God is speaking here when Jesus speaks to the people at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you're the salt of the earth. Who is that? Well, it's really all those who believe on Jesus Christ who have become his disciples. You are the salt of the earth. What's the earth? All the people that live upon the planet. In another place in Luke, Jesus says, this judgment will come upon all those who live upon the face of the earth. I think it's the same here. You are the salt. You are that which God left here to be savor, to affect, to preserve, sometimes to kill, not with the fist or sword now, but by the testimony that you are and how people react to you, you are a saver unto death for some. To preserve, to flavor, to basically affect all those who live upon the face of the earth. That's a pretty heavy weight and responsibility, isn't it? Husbands, you're given to be salt in your household. To be the leader in your household. To set the Christian standard. Obviously, we don't measure up most of the time. A lot of times we fall short. Sometimes we take a realization that, you know, we haven't affected our family right. My kids learned too much from me. Especially when I was either not a Christian or a young Christian. They learned a lot of things I wish they hadn't learned. You say, maybe I, maybe I haven't affected my household right. Maybe I haven't been 11 to, to permeate every aspect for Jesus. Maybe I haven't preserved it. Maybe I haven't flavored it. What do I do? Salt's a good thing, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it may be made salty again? Look with me at Matthew 5. Each time that Jesus is quoted as saying salt's a good thing, he prefaces that with a teaching. And I think in the teaching we can discover elements of savor, saltiness, and I'll use those interchangeably, savor and saltiness. 
It's the value of salt. Start reading at verse 3. You don't know this verse, do you? You don't know the scripture. It's not very familiar, is it? Of course it is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Does, is it pleasant to be meek in the earth? Is it pleasant to mourn? Is it pleasant to be poor in spirit? Is it pleasant to be pure in heart? Or to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Or to be merciful when it's thrown back in your face. Or to be a peacemaker when you're called just an old hippie, you know. Uh, or to be... Is it pleasant to be any of these things? Most of them it's not. How can I be blessed, that's happy, spiritually prosperous, if, if when I'm any of these things, it's not pleasant. It's hard. It's hard to mourn. It's beyond hard, and it comes in waves, and it, and it builds, and it carries you for many, many months. How am I blessed when I'm mourning? How am I happy and spiritually prosperous, God? Because in every one of these, there is a you will. There is a future hope. The Beatitudes, as we call them, are a teaching on heaven. Blessed are you when you know your need of God that's poor in spirit. Why? Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. You're going to get it. You can afford to live in the knowledge of your need of God and to cry out for Him. Why? Because heaven is yours. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because you will be comforted. You're comforted now by the Spirit of God. You're going to be comforted because you're going to see your loved one. You will see. You will be comforted. Blessed are you, are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Some days I don't know if I want it. But the point is, is blessed are you when you have strength under control and rightly applied that's meekness. When you restrain yourself and, and, and try to be a witness and a testimony to Jesus Christ. Why are you blessed then? Most of the time you get run over in the world. It's because you're going to get the new heaven. And under it the new earth. And God's there and you're going to dwell with him face to face forever. Blessed are you who are meek. Why? Because you're going to inherit a brand new planet that will never end. Blessed. 
are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hungering and thirsting is not pleasant. Why? Because you will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. That's not fun. I have pastors that serve our ministry in India, and we are planting churches in Hindu villages. We have 45 pastors. We have about 250 churches, and God is doing a wonderful work there. But if you become a member of one of those churches, you get excommunicated from your village. You, ha- you are persecuted. The pastors are beaten on a regular basis. It is very difficult to be a Christian there. Blessed are they because who are persecuted because of righteousness. They don't participate in the Hindu life of that village anymore. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven too. You can endure it now because you have hope. For the hope set before him, Jesus endured the cross, making light of its disgrace, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. From Hebrews 12. For the hope set before you, you can be meek. For the hope set before you, you can be poor in spirit. For the hope set before you, you can hunger and thirst for righteousness. For the hope set before you, even now, you can mourn. Because you have hope. Blessed are you when people treat you lousy for Jesus' sake. And if nobody's treated you lousy for Jesus' sake, maybe you ought to look at your life and see if you reflect Jesus. Because persecution will come to all who seek to live a godly life in Christ. It may not be stones, you may not be beaten, but you will certainly be affected in your relationship with the world if you live out your Christ life. But blessed are you Why? Because God has given you a promise. And it's heaven. You're going to be face to face with God in a city that's 1,600 miles long, wide and high, made of solid gold that you can see through. And by the way, that's your faith, that gold. And you're going to see God face to face and you're going to be like him. You're not going to be him, but you're going to be like him because you can see him face to face. And and John says everyone who has this hope before him purifies himself as Christ is pure. Peter says in 1 Peter, 1 chapter, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in His great mercy gave us new birth into a living hope. A living hope. It's kept for you in heaven. And nothing can destroy it or spoil it or wither it. It won't rust. Nobody can steal it. God has given you birth by, on the virtue of your faith in Jesus Christ. He's come into your heart and he's birthed hope in your heart. It's a living hope. Paul says in Colossians 2 that it is the evidence of Christ in you. The hope of glory. And because of it, you can be salt. Effective salt. In the world... And in your own home. You can put up with not being right all the time. You, you can afford to love your wife like Christ loved the church. 
and gave himself up for her. You can wash her with the water of the hearing of the word, not just so that you can be proved correct, but that so she can be built up in her most holy faith. You can learn how to respond and relate to your children in Christ with Jesus foremost. Why? Because you have a living hope. Salt's a good thing. But if it loses its saltiness, what good is it? And the primary aspect of your saltiness is that living hope. It's a gift of God, brethren. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. But you can certainly develop it and look back to it. It comes because you believe that Jesus Christ died in your place. That he was the anointed one of God, the one set apart from of old and sent into the world. Uh, Hebrews would call him Messiah. You in Greek call him Christ. Jesus is his name. Christ is his office or function. And he is your Lord or Master. The more that you submit to him as Lord and Master, the more the hope grows, it seems to me. It's Christ living in you. Ruling in you, taking you over, making you like himself. For this is God's purpose, that you should be shaped into the image and likeness of his son, that he might be the eldest among a large family of brethren, from Romans 8. And all things work together for your good, then, if you're called to that, right? It's a wonderful hope. It's a wonderful promise. You're going to see God face to face, and you're going to be like him forever. And then it doesn't matter. Nothing that happens here matters there. You can endure anything here because you have that promise. We look forward to a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness, Peter says in 2 Peter 3. You ever notice how God let, let Peter get back at Paul for Galatians? In, in 2 Peter 3, he says, where Paul writes, wherever he writes on this matter, though they contain some obscure passages, which the ignorant and unstable misinterpret to their ruin, as they do the other scriptures. So, and it's kind of like a little backhanded Paul there for Galatians, where he took Peter to task. You never see that. Okay, anyway, that's just a sideline. Uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. And the latter part of the chapter, starting at the 42nd verse, if anyone causes one of these little ones, that's new believers who believe in the Lord Jesus, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you... Uh, see, this NIV doesn't quote the rest of that. This is a quote that Jesus is using from the last verse of the book of Isaiah. And the full quote is, Where the fire never goes out and the worms do not die. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out and the worm never dies. And if your foot caused you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell 
where the worms never die and the fire never goes out. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. You know that everybody gets salted with fire? You think you have trial. You think you have troubles. Amen. Everybody does. Everyone will be salted with fire. Fire is trial. Did you know that if you take gold in ore, and you've cracked it, and you've even added some arsenic to it and tried to get it out. It's, it's not pure. So you put it, put it in a crucible, which is a container with, that you can heat, generally stone, and you heat it from beneath, and you hit a certain heat, and the gold melts. And the dross, the impurities in it, come to the top. And you can take the dross off the, and then pour it out, and as it cools, that's what's called fine gold. It's still not completely pure, but it's like 9.9999% pure. If gold will melt, then of course it will boil. If it boils, it vaporizes, and you lose mass. So if you ever wanted to find a, have a fun experience, go to a smelter and ask the manager if you can scrape the ceiling over his crucibles. He'll say, get out of here, that's my retirement fund, right? <laughs> so, God tests all of his children as one would test gold. God knows exactly how much heat to put to the crucible of your faith so as to get the dross out, but not make it vaporize. God will never destroy your faith. In the midst of a trial, in the midst of the fiery trial, whatever it happens to be, know that God will not allow your faith to boil. He'll not destroy it. He'll always know, he'll always do it simply for the purpose of making you worthy of all praise, glory, and honor. Making your faith result in all praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed, according to Peter in the first chapter. If your foot leads you into sin, cut it off. If your hand leads you into sin, cut it off. If your eye leads you into sin, pluck it out. Better to go into heaven with one eye than to go to hell. Where the worm there never dies. And the fire there never goes out. You know, people have said there's no hell, God... Love wins, and God would not do that to anybody, and it's only a few verses in the New Testament that, that talk about hell. But of course, Jesus is quoting Isaiah. And he's quoting the end of Isaiah, where the whole, the saved, redeemed world goes and looks at hell, where the worm there never dies and the fire never goes out. The place made for Satan and his angels, which we get to share if we reject the Christ. It's a real place. And most of what we know about it, we know from the teachings of Jesus. 
We know there that the worm doesn't go out, the fire doesn't die. He quoted Isaiah about that. We also know from what he said that there's outer darkness. There's wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of agony. And you don't want to go there. And you don't want anybody that you know to go there. Do you realize how many people drove down this street while we were meeting here this morning who are on their way to hell? And we have no effect on their life? Salt's a really good thing, brethren. And the saltiness that God has called us to is to take the, the reality of hell seriously. And I don't think most of us do. Say, oh yeah, man, I'm going to go party with my buds in hell. No, you're not. Or you think, well, they, 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 gosh, I sort of wish they were right with Jesus. Have you really prayed like they were facing the reality of hell? A place from which there is no escape? A place where once you're there, you're there. And it's eternal. I don't think most of us do. We would weep in our prayers. We would put the name of Jesus upon our lips. We would hate sin. If, if your hand could lead you into sin, cut it off. Of course, that's literal, you know. Your hand cannot lead you into sin. Your foot cannot lead you into sin. Your eye cannot lead you into sin. If it could, that would be easy. Cut them off. Pluck them out. Better to have them gone than to go into to hell with anything. But it's your heart, brethren, that leads you into sin. Temptation arises when a man is enticed and lured away by his own lust. Then lust conceives and gives birth to sin. And sin, full grown, breeds death. From James 1. It's the heart that needs to be changed. And you can't pluck it out. God's got to come and change it. And he comes by faith when you believe on Jesus. He comes and begins that change. He begins to transform you and renew you in Christ. And he lives there in hope. And I don't even know if the heart is a, it's not an organ, obviously. It's a, this we're talking about is some place in you where Christ resides. In living hope. Hell is real. Do you abhor sin? I, you know, let's put that off. Paul says, no, I, may it never be, and he puts it away. Right? I was in, uh, in Haiti the first time I was there, and I'd been, I'd been in Buffalo and Cincinnati. It was in February, getting acclimated to go down there, you know, and it was, there was snow and, and everything, and I got to Haiti, and it was 90 degrees, and I had, I wear a, a hoodie when I travel, a zip front. You know, it's nice on an airplane if you're cold or something, and, and I got there, and of course, you don't need that hoodie zip front there, and they took me to my guest room, and, uh, the electricity was out at the time, which, of course, that's a common in Haiti. It, it comes and goes all the time. So, of course, there was no light, no fan, no air conditioner. And in the tropics, it gets dark really fast, really early. So what do you do? You go to bed. Right? So I hung my, my jacket on the back of a chair and jumped into bed. Well, at one, of the clock, 1 o'clock in the morning, the electricity had come on. The light was on. The fan was on. The air conditioner was on. And I was freezing. Right? So jump out of bed, and I grabbed my jacket and put my arm in the sleeve. 
and realize I wasn't alone in my room. There was something really large in here. And so I'm thinking, oh, and then it started crawling up my arm, just like, you know, in a movie or something. And so I did not want that there. (laughs) So I ripped my sleeve out, my arm out of the sleeve, and then it went under my T-shirt sleeve. So I, ah, and I went like that. It hit the floor, went under the bed, right? And so I jumped up and pulled the sheet up and went to sleep. You'd probably do that, right? And, um, I mean, if, if they can't see you, they can't get you. And, and so um, that's sin. Do you respond to sin in your life like that? Any sin. When it comes in, do you, ah, do you sweep it off? I think most of us kind of play with it sometimes. How close can we get without getting in real trouble? Sin is to be abhorred, brethren. I was asleep on a couch in, in Mendocino, Cal- not Mendocino, uh, Mariposa, California, up in the foothills, and, and we were been partying there all week, and this cabin, this old miner's cabin, had uh, couches in there, and I was asleep on my back, and when I woke up, this was before Christ, and I felt a weight on my chest. And I heard this... And it was a rat smelling my breath. He loved this smell. No, anyway. And so, what do you think I did? I grabbed hold of that thing and I flung it. Hopefully I was going to land on somebody else, but it hit the wall and dropped down, right? And I turned the light on. And I never turned it off. I didn't say, hey guys, look at this fine example of Norwegian fauna, you know, that is growing on our, in our place. No, it's get off of me. That's sin. It's sin, brethren. And the light of Christ in you is the only thing to keep it away. As you respond against your temptations, because your flesh and your lust will lead you into temptation, and you can't rip it out, but you can get rid of it. You can turn to the light, Jesus Christ. He is the light, and you can come to Him and live in the light. Never turn it off. Why? Because hell is the end result of those who will persist in sin. Do you really believe there is a hell? The respect for the reality of hell and the respect for the reality that each one of us is tested by fire in our lives enables us to live at peace with one another. You're tested like me. I understand that, brother. You're tested the same way I'm tested. And maybe because of that, we could live at peace with one another. As a matter of fact, God calls us to be at peace with one another. To have that saltiness of respect for the fact that we're both tested. And the fact that there is a real hell that we all face. Because salt's really good. And the reality there is the, is the essence of our saltiness. One of the primary three. Hope is one. Respect for the reality of hell and the fact that we all face it is two. Three, Luke 14. Please, come with me there. 14.25. You know what it means when a preacher looks at his watch, right? Nothing at all. 
Verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be. He's not qualified to be. It is unable and impossible for him to be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be. It's impossible for them to be. They're not qualified to be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost and see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? For if he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. It's impossible for you to be. You're not qualified to be my disciple. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Unless you hate your mother, father, sister, brother, even your own life, you're not qualified to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless you pick up your cross every day and follow him, you're not qualified. It's impossible for you to be. You cannot be his disciple. Well, God, I'm supposed to love my wife and my parents and my brothers and my sisters. What do you mean? This is what's called a comparative statement. What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, all your mind, even all your soul. What's left? Nothing. Comparatively, everything else is hate. So the qualification for discipleship of Jesus is to love God, to keep the first commandment. With all that you have. Everything else comes second. Actually, most everything else comes third. Because the second statement, unless you pick up your cross every day and follow me, you're not qualified to be my disciple, is like unto the first. I used to think picking up a cross and following Jesus, what was that? I thought it was something put upon me. I thought it was a burden. I thought it was a hurt. I thought it was a bad car or a, or a hard boss. Okay, I thought all those things were my cross that I was supposed to pick up. But actually, it's the second commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. That's the command. So both of these are negative restatements of the greatest commandment and the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you'll do that, you pick up your cross every day. A cross is not something put upon you. I used to carry a cross. I made an, a 12 foot by 6 foot, 90 pound, 4 by 4 cross and carried it down the street. You, you've probably done that, right? And uh, you get interesting reactions. And um, and we were giving away tracts and, and Bibles and people were running away and stuff. But it was we, we saw a wonderful ministry. Um, but that wasn't the cross either. That's too easy. 90 pounds is nothing compared to the cross you're to pick up. What was the cross of Christ? You heard it last night if you were here for John. 
He says, the reason the Father loves me is because I lay my life down, only to take it up again. I lay it down of my own accord. No one takes it from me. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. The cross of Jesus was something he chose because of love. Love for the Father and love for you. The cross, your cross, is something you choose to do out of love. When you, when you help someone that cannot or will not help themselves, when you choose to stay with somebody who's wayward as a spouse, when you choose to endure with someone who isn't loving you back, when you choose to endure in a world that's full of hate and anger and violence, when you choose to stay there and minister the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that's a cross. It's not something put upon you, it's something you pick up in love. And it is so much an aspect of our Savior. Because God's people love God with everything. And God's people love because God first loved them. It's by this that we know what love is, John says in 1 John. That Christ laid down his life for us. Jesus commanded us to go and do the same thing. My command is this, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I call you servants no longer, for a servant does not know about his master's business. But I've called you friends because everything I've learned from my father I've made known to you. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask. My command is this, love each other. Love isn't some namby-pamby romantic idea. It's not an emotion-filled thing that you do because you, you are attracted to a person. It's, it's not sex. Love is when you choose to deny yourself for someone else's good. Love is when you imitate Christ who gave himself up for us by choice. That's love. Everything else is a poor reflection of that love. You don't, you don't start building a house unless you figure you can finish. You got the loan in the bank, you know, in that whole deal, or you got a lot of hope about it. You, you don't want to be made fun of. You don't go to war with 10,000 if the guy coming against you has got 20,000, unless you got a big bomb, you know. You got a way of figuring out how to do it. And Jesus said, you can't be my disciples unless you make this one transition. You have chosen to love? Good. You must. You've chosen to pick up your cross? Good. You must. Realize it's going to cost you everything you have. You can't hold on to anything. Nothing is yours. What do you have that you did not receive anyway, Paul would say? And if you did receive it, why do you act as if you did not? You've earned nothing. God has created you, enabled you, given you the strength to do what you do. Given you the intellect and the training and the learning and the food and everything else. You have nothing that is really yours. So why hold on to it as if it were your possession? Because God is going to require it of you. He may enable you to live here in the United States. To be able to flush five gallons of good drinking water down the bathroom in the morning when 90% of the kids in the world don't have enough to drink. 
He may, he may enable you to get in a car and have two or three cars in your family and, and go home and turn on an air conditioner or a heater and to have choices, three meals a day and, and snacks in between. When so many in the world have nothing. But what you have, God may require of you and certainly requires it of your heart even now, today, right now. If you will be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must separate yourself from all your possessions. You must put love for your brethren before them. And then you must put love for God before all of them. It is your primary saltiness in your family, brethren. It is your primary element of saltiness in the world. You have hope. You can, you can endure what's going on in the world. You can endure if you were a Christian in Orissa State in India and your, your house was burned and your church was burned and you were warned if you went home, you would be burned. And they did some to prove it. You can endure that. Why? Because you have hope. And actually, you get along with your family and your brethren in the church. Why? Because you all face the same thing. The reality of hell, the hope of heaven, and the fact that you're all being tested. And why would you do all that? What's the wonderful, wonderful event we are called to? And the wonderful action we are called to? Because love is an action It's love. Love for God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. Why? Because he's worthy of it. Simply put, he's worthy of it. And because of that, love your brother. Love your sisters. Love your children. Salt's a good thing, brethren. But if it loses its saltiness, what's it good for? It's not good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And how, do you, how does it regain its saltiness? Because our God is a God of hope. And if you sit there and say, man, I don't have any of those things. I need to get them. Yes. Turn towards God in your heart. Seek his face. Go back, read those scriptures. See if what I said is true. Weigh them in the balance. And ask the Lord to rekindle your most holy hope. Ask the Lord to show you the reality of the testimony to the reality of hell in the Bible. And, and be weighed with the reality that all the people around you are being tested just like you. And then make the choice to love the Lord your God with everything, to let go of everything. That doesn't mean go out in the street and throw them out in the street. It means use what God has given you properly. Set your heart on God, and he will rekindle your hope. He will face you with the reality of hell. He will flood your heart anew with love. And he'll enable you to love, to pick up your cross every day and follow him.
Let those who have ears to hear, hear. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the patience of these people. Thank you for the honor of being in this pulpit. I pray that your word will attract and build and grow and yield a crop for your glory. 30-fold, 60-fold, even 100-fold. In Jesus' name, amen.